Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. My discomforts were aggravated by the totally unnatural behavior which I thought it my duty to adopt at a dance, and that had come about in a sufficiently amusing way. Reading much and mixing little with children of my own age, I had, before I went to school, developed a vocabulary which must, I now see, have sounded very funny from the lips of a chubby urchin in an Eton jacket. When I brought out my long words, adults not unnaturally thought I was showing off. In this they were quite mistaken. I used the only words I knew. The position was indeed the exact reverse of what they supposed. My pride would have been gratified by using such schoolboy slang as I possessed not at all by using the bookish language which, inevitably in my circumstances, came naturally to my tongue. And there were not lacking adults who would egg me on with feigned interest and feigned seriousness, on and on till the moment at which I suddenly knew I was being laughed at. Then, of course, my mortification was intense, and after one or two such experiences I made it a rigid rule that at social functions, as I secretly called them, I must never on any account speak of any subject in which I felt the slightest interest, nor in any words that naturally occurred to me, and I kept my rule only too well. A giggling and gurgling imitation of the vapidest grown-up chatter, a deliberate concealment of all that I really thought and felt under a sort of feeble jocularity and enthusiasm, was henceforth my party manner, assumed as consciously as an actor assumes his role sustained with unspeakable weariness, and dropped with a groan of relief the moment my brother and I at last tumbled into our cab and the drive home. The only pleasure of the evening began. It took me years to make the discovery that any real human intercourse could take place at a mixed assembly of people in their good clothes. I am here struck by the curious mixture of justice and injustice in our lives. We are blamed for our real faults, but usually not on the right occasions. I was, no doubt, and was blamed for being a conceited boy. But the blame was usually attached to something in which no conceit was present. Adults often accuse a child of vanity without pausing to discover on what points children in general, or that child in particular, are likely to be vain. Thus it was for years a complete mystery to me that my father should stigmatize as affectation, my complaints about the itching and tickling of new underclothes. I see it all now. He had in mind a social legend associating delicacy of skin with refinement, and supposed that I was claiming to be unusually refined. In reality, I was in simple ignorance of that social legend, and if vanity had come into the matter, would have been much prouder of having a skin like a sailor. I was being accused of an offense which I lacked resources to commit. I was on another occasion called affected, for asking what stirabout was. It is, in fact, a low Irish word for porridge. To certain adults, it seems obvious that he who claims not to know the low must be pretending to be high. Yet the real reason why I asked was that I had never happened to hear the word. Had I done so, I should have piqued myself on using it. Oldie's school, you will remember, sank unlamented in summer 1910. New arrangements had to be made for my education. My father now hit upon a plan which filled me with delight. 
About a mile from the new house rose the large red brick walls and towers of Campbell College, which had been founded for the express purpose of giving Ulster boys all the advantages of a public school education without the trouble of crossing the Irish Sea. My clever cousin, Uncle Joe's boy, was already there and doing well. It was decided that I should go as a boarder. But I could get an exeat to come home every Sunday. I was enchanted. I did not believe that anything Irish, even a school, could be bad. Certainly not so bad as all I yet knew of England. To Campbell, I accordingly went. I was at this school for so short a time that I shall attempt no criticism of it. It was very unlike any English public school that I have ever heard of. It had indeed prefects, but the prefects were of no importance. It was nominally divided into houses on the English pattern, but they were mere legal fictions. Except for the purposes of games, which were not compulsory, no one took any notice of them. The population was socially much more mixed than at most English schools. I rubbed shoulders there with farmers' sons. The boy I most nearly made a friend of was the son of a tradesman who had recently been going the rounds with his father's van because the driver was illiterate and could not keep the books. I much envied him this pleasant occupation, and he, poor fellow, looked back on it as a golden age. This time last month, Lewis, he used to say, I wouldn't have been going into preparation. I'd have been coming home from my rounds, and a wee tea cloth laid for me at one end of the table and sausages to my tea. I am always glad, as a historian, to have known Campbell, for I think it was very much what the great English schools had been before Arnold. There were real fights at Campbell, with seconds, and, I think, betting, and a hundred or more roaring spectators. There was bullying, too, though no serious share of it came my way, and there was no trace of the rigid hierarchy which governs a modern English school. Every boy held just the place which his fists and mother wit could win for him. From my point of view, the great drawback was that one had, so to speak, no home. Only a few very senior boys had studies. The rest of us, except one seated at table for meals or in a huge preparation room for evening prep, belonged nowhere. In out-of-school hours, one spent one's time either evading or conforming to all those inexplicable movements which a crowd exhibits as it thins here and thickens there, now slackens its pace, and now sets like a tide in one particular direction, now seems about to disperse, and then clots again. The bare brick passages echoed to a continual tramp of feet, punctuated with catcalls, scrimmages, gusty laughter. One was always moving on, or hanging about, in lavatories, in storerooms, in the great hall. It was very like living permanently in a large railway station. The bullying had this negative merit, that it was honest bullying. Not bullying conscience-sabbed and authorized in the maison tolérée of the prefectorial system. It was done mainly by gangs, parties of eight or ten boys, each who scoured those interminable corridors for prey. Their sorties, though like a whirlwind, were not perceived by the victim till too late. The general endless confusion and clamor, I suppose, masked them. Sometimes capture involved serious consequences. Two boys whom I knew were carried off and flogged in some backwater, flogged in the most disinterested fashion, for their captors had no personal acquaintance with them, art for art's sake. But on the only occasion when I was caught myself, my fate was much milder and perhaps odd enough to be worth recording. 
When I had come to myself after being dragged at headlong speed through a labyrinth of passages, which took me beyond all usual landmarks, I found that I was one of several prisoners in a low, bare room, half-lit, I think, by a single gas-jet. After a pause to recover their breath, two of the brigands led out the first captive. I now noticed that a horizontal row of pipes ran along the opposite wall, about three feet from the floor. I was alarmed, but not surprised when the prisoner was forced into a bending position, with his head under the lowest pipe, in the very posture for execution. But I was very much surprised a moment later. You will remember that the room was half dark. The two gangsters gave their victim a shove, and instantly no victim was there. He vanished, without trace, without sound. It appeared to be sheer black magic. Another victim was let out. Again, the posture for a flogging was assumed. Again, instead of flogging, dissolution, atomization, annihilation. At last, my own turn came. I, too, received the shove from behind and found myself falling through a hole or hatch in the wall into what turned out to be a coal cellar. Another small boy came hurtling in after me. The door was slammed and bolted behind us, and our captors, with a joyous whoop, rushed away for more booty. They were, no doubt, playing against a rival gang with whom they would presently compare bags. We were let out again presently, very dirty and rather cramped, but otherwise none the worse. Much the most important thing that happened to me at Campbell was that I there read Sorab and Rustam, in form under an excellent master whom we called Octi. I loved the poem at first sight, and have loved it ever since. As the wet fog, in the first line, rose out of the Oxus stream, so out of the whole poem there rose and wrapped me round an exquisite, silvery coolness, a delightful quality of distance and calm, a grave melancholy. I hardly appreciated then, as I have since learned to do, the central tragedy. What enchanted me was the artist in Pekin with his ivory forehead and pale hands, the cypress in the Queen's garden, the backward glance at Rustam's youth, the peddlers from Kabul, the hushed Khorasmian waste. Arnold gave me at once, and the best of Arnold gives me still, a sense, not indeed of passionless vision, but of a passionate, silent gazing at things a long way off. And here observe how literature actually works. Parrot critics say that Sorab is a poem for classicists, to be enjoyed only by those who recognize the Homeric echoes. But I in Octi's form room, and on Octi be peace, knew nothing of Homer. For me, the relation between Arnold and Homer worked the other way. When I came, years later, to read the Iliad, I liked it partly because it was, for me, reminiscent of Sorab. Plainly, it does not matter at what point you first break into the system of European poetry. Only keep your ears open and your mouth shut, and everything will lead you to everything else in the end. Ogni parte, ad ogni parte splende. About halfway through my first and only term at Campbell, I fell ill and was taken home. My father, for reasons I do not quite know, had become dissatisfied with the school. He had also been attracted by accounts of a preparatory school in the town of Wyvern, though quite unconnected with Wyvern College, especially by the convenience that if I went there, my brother and I could still do the journey together. Accordingly, I had a blessed six weeks at home, with the Christmas holidays to look forward to at the end, and, after that, a new adventure. 
In a surviving letter, my father writes to my brother that I think myself lucky, but he fears I shall be very lonely before the end of the week. It is strange that having known me all my life, he should have known me so little. During these weeks I slept in his room, and was thus freed from solitude during most of those dark hours in which alone solitude was dreadful to me. My brother being absent, he and I could not lead one another into mischief. There was, therefore, no friction between my father and myself. I remember no other time in my life of such untroubled affection. We were famously snug together. And in the days when he was out, I entered with complete satisfaction into a deeper solitude than I had ever known. The empty house, the empty, silent rooms, were like a refreshing bath after the crowded noise of Campbell. I could read, write, and draw to my heart's content. Curiously enough, it is at this time, not in earlier childhood, that I chiefly remember delighting in fairy tales. I fell deeply under the spell of dwarfs, the old, bright-hooded, snowy-bearded dwarfs we had in those days before Arthur Rackham sublimed or Walt Disney vulgarized the Earthmen. I visualized them so intensely that I came to the very frontiers of hallucination. Once, walking in the garden, I was for a second not quite sure that a little man had not run past me into the shrubbery. I was faintly alarmed, but it was not like my night fears. A fear that guarded the road to ferry was one I could face. No one is a coward at all points. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>